what Keep Kids Alive is all about. It's all about preserving relationships. I think when a tragedy like this happens, when someone who had their whole life ahead of them and had so much more to do and so much more to see and experience and their life was cut short at such a young age, how do you still keep them in your life every day and in others' lives? Not everyone can be an advocate, but to have the same people with the same goals together, which is trying to save one life, even if it's one life that's saved because of the advocacy work, then all that work is worth it. She does constantly put people in our path. Just, you know, we started something in the Outer Banks because Emily put somebody in our path that had the abilities to make things happen. And she ended up reaching out to us. So we started a uh, Emily Fredericks Memorial Fund for safe streets for pedestrians and bikers in the Outer Banks. First of all, traffic violence can affect anyone. We've met so many people that have come up to us during events in Philly and said, you know, it very well could have been them that day that was killed instead of Emily. So when people don't want to hear the stories or it makes them uncomfortable, it very well could affect them because there's over 40,000 people that are killed by traffic violence every year. I'm Tom Everson. I'm the executive director and founder of Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. We're a nonprofit that works on traffic safety education issues based in Omaha, Nebraska. And our mission is simply to help make streets safer for all who walk, cycle, play, drive, and ride. So that's all of us. Today, we're gonna be talking with Laura and Rich Fredericks, Emily's uh, mom and dad, to have them share her story and their journey since her death. And so I wanna welcome Laura and Rich from East Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, to share about Emily's story. But to start off, I always like to kind of make a connection as to how we connected in the first place. Laura and I went back and forth about this just a little bit, and I, I think it was through uh, Sangeeta Badlani, who uh, has a foundation in honor of her son, uh, Nikhil, and uh, was a part of our podcast just about a year ago, and is part of Families for Safe Streets, and I believe you're a part of Families for Safe Streets as well. That's right, Tom. And and I believe that's how we got connected. And we're both in the same chapter in New Jersey, Sangeeta and I. And then Rich and I are co-founders of the Families for Safe Streets chapter out in Philly. And last year, your organization, Keep Kids Alive 25, had done t-shirts. They were bright orange t-shirts, great for being able to be seen while you're walking or biking. And on the back is the design of a butterfly. And Emily's name is part of that beautiful butterfly on the back. Yes. And, and for our listeners, you know, each year we do a, a 5K run walk based here in uh, Omaha, which is our hometown. But we also invite people to form teams uh, virtually all around the country. And so last year, uh, 
Emily was honored as part of one of those virtual teams that we had. And so we created shirts for each of the families that are tailored for their family and in the color that they choose. And, you know, fortunately, a few weeks ago, Laura and I were able to talk for a couple hours. It was very compelling conversation and, you know, has led to this opportunity to share their story on our uh, podcast today. Thank you for taking the time and the care and consideration to do that. So I wanted to ask you just about your story and about Emily. You know, who was she? Uh, who does she continue to be for you? Kind of what's the spark that she shared in her life that continues to connect with people today? Well, Emily, I'll start off by saying she was 24 years old when she was killed. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But she was just a kind, loving person. She was a very good friend to all of her friends. She was not afraid to love or be loved. I say that very often because it's very true. She was quick to show her love and and quick to take it on in. And she loved to hold hands and be close. And even as she was a young woman, she just was a kind, loving person. And she was just not afraid to laugh at herself in any situation. and. She had a contagious giggle that uh, her and her younger brother, when they got together, you know, all through their years growing up, they just laughed. It was just a constant laugh and giggle. And, you know, unfortunately, he has lost his person to be silly with. And she was just very creative. And, And after she was killed, you know, devastating to have to go through all of her things, she, you know, she was in an apartment living with girlfriends at the time. So to go through her personal items and we found all these beautiful pictures uh, that she had painted with watercolors and they are now all hanging up, of course, in the house. And she was a French pastry chef. So even some of the watercolors had to do with her work, how she was going to create the Alice in Wonderland display, you know, that was all in a, in a watercolor picture. Then with her notes on the back about how she was going to create those pastries. And we've bottled wine. We've made wine and we had someone make candles for us for Emily's foundation. And we've used Emily's artwork on those labels uh, for both the wine and the candles. So she was just a very open, kind person. You know, I, we just miss her terribly. What a powerful legacy and, you know, her artwork being testimony to not only when she was living and breathing here on this earth, but also in being able to share that with people to this day. Uh, I hope I get to see some of that artwork at some point. That would be wonderful. We'd love to share it. Well, Rich, I see you leaning in. Uh, wondering if you have some thoughts you wanted to add to that. We did get to experience Emily in so many ways. You know, her world, you know, when she was at Sagamar Resort in Lake George, you know, the Ritz-Carlton in Florida. We just enjoyed getting things back from her, like where she traveled to, because she was able to go to Italy and France and Spain. While she was in Ritz-Carlton, she had a boyfriend from Peru. and. He wanted to take her home to see his mom. So they went to Peru. She was able to go there and visit and see Machu Picchu. And 
you know, those were things that we enjoyed listening and seeing pictures of as she got back from that kind of thing, you know. And then when she was down at the Ritz-Carlton in, in Naples and we went down to visit and she couldn't wait for us to come and see the kitchen where she worked and to meet chef and the chef spoke with us afterwards and he said, I, I don't think I've ever had a worker for me be so excited for me to meet their parents, for her to show us around. And he was just so impressed with her personality and how loving she was. And he wound up coming up from Florida for her funeral. Wow. I mean, what a testimonial about what family, you know, meant to uh, Emily. And it's certainly an affirmation for the two of you as her parents that she would be so eager to, to introduce you. I hope that's something you can always carry with you as uh, maybe a little pat on the back that she's giving you, you know, even in these times. Thank you, Tom. If you're comfortable with sharing maybe some of the circumstances of how Emily died and uh, what transpired in the wake of her death. Yes. Every time we speak about what happened to her and every time we say her name and it is difficult, of course, to tell this story over and over again, but it needs to be told because people need to hear how their actions can kill someone. So she was living in Philadelphia and it was less than six months. She had moved, as we said, from Naples. She was homesick. She wanted to be closer to home. So she wound up getting an apartment with two girlfriends and we saw her so much in those six months. We were so happy to have her closer, as was she. So it was actually a, a work day. I think it was a Tuesday. And I worked for a therapist at the time. And Emily's roommate called me and said, have you talked to Emily this morning? And I said, no, but I talked to her you know, late last night. So apparently her job had reached out to the roommate to say she had not shown up to work that morning. And, you know, right away, my body, I can even feel this same sensation that I had that morning just went into, you know, this shock and overload. And, uh, you know, we tried calling her phone and you know, was her bicycle at work? Maybe she went out with chef to the market because they would do that occasionally, but her bike was not there. So I then proceeded to call my husband and Michael and Jack, her two brothers. And we all started heading home to her house in New Jersey to meet up. And then we were going to drive to Philadelphia. Well, in the meantime, on my drive home, I get a phone call and I pull into a, a gas station there and it's a police officer who said that she had been involved in an accident and that she was in the hospital. So and then the hospital wouldn't give me any information. So we all meet up at home and my first thought was to just throw clothes in a duffel bag and we had to stay overnight somewhere in Philly. And, and as we were still there at home, you know, converging, we got a call from the emergency room and the doctor actually told us while we were in New Jersey and still had that drive to make that Emily was dead. 
And my older son pulls up, my younger son pulls up, and I have to tell them that their sister is dead. And at that point, we didn't know anything. So that drive to Philadelphia was so, so difficult. Awful. It was it was just Awful. heartbreaking. And I think it was Jack that drove. So yeah. our, our youngest son drove the four of us there. I don't know how he did it. And uh, when we got to the hospital... They would not even let us touch her. We couldn't even kiss her, touch her, because they told us that this was all part of a homicide investigation. And the only person that really came to talk to us was the woman who was from the Gift of Life who wanted... Organ donation. Organ donation. So it was, you know, the the experience there when I, you know, every time I think back about it is... It's not that kind and loving space we should have had. And Emily was able to donate her corneas, her skin, and her heart valves. And some bone. And bone. That's right. That's right. So um, since then, you know, we learned more that she was cycling to work and she was killed by the driver of a sanitation truck. So she was in an unprotected bike lane, but this did happen at the intersection of Spruce and 11th Street. So the driver didn't have a turn signal on. He had earbuds and uh, there's a sign there to say yield to cyclists. And as she approached the light, the intersection, and then it was time to move, he didn't have a turn signal on. So she thought he was going straight. But she had the right of way anyway, and he made a right hook into her and killed her. You know, the question that comes to mind, and I've asked this many times, is uh, what is the cost of not paying attention? When we don't pay attention to signaling properly, when we uh, have earbuds or headphones on while we're driving and we're unaware of the sounds that are happening around us, I mean, all of those contributing factors and, you know, behaviors that we have control over, that we make decisions about. I really invite our listeners to ponder that because, you know, the two questions I always like to ask folks when I do presentations is, you know, who do you love and who loves you? Because the the answers to those two questions are all the reasons that we should ever need to put aside the cell phone, to take off the earbuds, to, to pay attention to the task that is right in front of us and in, in driving. My heart hurts for, for you in just hearing the story and you know, recognizing that this definitely did not need to happen. So oftentimes we refer to these things as accidents and you know, accidents are completely unavoidable. And uh, this was completely avoidable. That's right. And, and you know, we've learned uh, since Emily's been killed about the value of messaging and how to term things the right way. These many, many of these deaths are preventable. You know, we certainly use the term crash and not accident. And there's actually a website called Crash Not Accident then that folks can go on and take the pledge to start referring to these traffic violence tragedies as crashes. What has happened since Emily's death in terms of 
your work, not only with Families for Safe Streets, but also the foundation that you've set up in in her name and honor? So uh, when Emily was killed in 2017, one of the members from the Bicycle Coalition had gotten in touch with us almost immediately. The next day. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was your sister who was... Yeah, yeah. had people screening, screening phone calls because we don't know who these people are. But he was legit. Yeah, so we he wound up coming into New Brunswick and we, and we met him. And he just gave us more information again about these crashes that happen that are preventable, whether it's unprotected bike lanes, poor infrastructure, distracted driving, you know, all these things. So that was uh, November of 2017. So in March of 2018, they invited us out to Philly for their annual Vision Zero conference. And we met some other families that had lost loved ones as well. So Latanya Bird's four family members were killed on Roosevelt Boulevard. And Shannabel Latham Morris's son, Jamal, was cycling and he had been killed by a hit and run driver. She still doesn't know who killed her son. And then Ann Japsikis' husband, Peter, who ironically was a real advocate for safe streets, a car jumped the curb and he was on the sidewalk and he was killed. So we started a chapter of Families for Safe Streets out there. We had one of the people from the New York chapter come out and give us some tips on how to start a chapter. And... That's what we've been doing out there in Philly. And that, of course, has grown into many other opportunities for us that that we'll talk about later. But some of the things that we've worked on out there, we work with the Accident Investigation Division, which we are on top of them to change the name of their organization out there to hopefully the Crash Investigation Division. But Families for Safe Streets has been crucial in helping them advocate for two pieces of technology so that they can investigate crashes in a more up-to-date way. So we they have the FARO technology now for crash reconstruction and there's crash data recorder that helps for them to be able to look at these crashes and investigate them in the way that they should be. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, mission for Families for Safe Streets? I think a big part of it is bringing the families together. Richie, right? As a group, for us, you're going to want to have a parent company of some sort where we were able to have the Bicycle Coalition help us get started. So, yes, but yeah, getting the people together. And that's probably one of the most difficult things because it's it's hard. Uh, You know, we know how many people are killed every year walking and biking, and there's not a lot of people that want that are able to come out. It's just difficult for them, I guess. And, you know, we know the difficulty of it, but we feel we need to do something just because Emily cannot be forgotten, just like you're throwing out the trash. I mean, right. You know, so. Yeah. And I and I think, uh, you know, not everyone can be an advocate, but to have the same people with the same goals together, which is trying to save one life, even if it's one life that's saved because of the advocacy work, then all that work is worth it. The New York chapter, certainly during 
COVID, when we couldn't be in person together, they really got all the chapters together and really had some uh, like therapy evenings where we joined in via Zoom and we had like show and tell and it was like sound therapy. And, you know, it was so great to be connected with the people who are going through the same things that you are going through. It's a safe space to be. Don't have to explain yourself. You know exactly how you all feel. And then in conjunction with that is trying to push the city, wherever you live locally with this chapter, to make changes. So, you know, Emily was cycling, but she was killed by a sanitation truck. And we found out later on that there's a noise ordinance in the city that doesn't allow the sanitation pickup on off hours because people don't want to be disrupted while they're trying to sleep or as they're just getting up in the morning, you know, whatever it is, it's, it has to do with people being disrupted. So we have been pushing the city since Emily has been killed to change that because if that truck had been collecting on off hours, Emily would still be here today. So we just found out, Tom, that the city is starting a pilot program in the fall for the collection of trash on off hours. And these are the things that put the wind behind your sails and keep you going. And speed cameras along Roosevelt Boulevard, we see that the numbers are good and we want to continue that program and expand it. We know that those cameras are saving lives. We have the data to show it. So we have a lot of members too in our Families for Safe Streets group that have not lost loved ones or have not been seriously injured. They are members of the community and they use the streets and they, they cycle and they walk and they, they are part of a community and they have joined our group to help us save lives. One of the things that points to is uh, the power of story, that the stories that you share about Emily, that families share, ab- share about their loved ones, has the opportunity to move the needle in the right direction, whether it be local ordinances or uh, state legislation uh, that may need to take place. You know, those people who are uh, in those legislative roles, wherever they may be, they need to hear those stories because that really puts it, it not just a face, but a life and a heartbeat and a breath into why it's important to make changes. Now, whether that has to do with legislation, whether it has to do with infrastructure, the power of story is, I know it's redundant, but to saying it's powerful and it's needed and it's necessary. You know, to me, that's an invitation to really, in my case, open my ears even more and recognize that there's something to learn from uh, listening to those stories. So I'm grateful that you have taken the time, the energy, and, and honestly, the compassion to share those stories, to engage others. I think you made two really good points there, Tom. First of all, traffic violence can affect anyone. We've met so many people that have come up to us during events in Philly and said, you know, it very well could have been them that day that was killed instead of Emily. So when people don't want to hear the stories or it makes them uncomfortable, it very well 
could affect them because there's over 40,000 people that are killed by traffic violence every year. So it affects everybody. And, and the second thing is about the legislation that you've talked about. So Rich and I have partnered with some other people out in Philly, and we've started the PA Safe Roads Political Action Committee. And we formed in order to support candidates who are committed to the policies and transportation and law enforcement that are proven to reduce fatalities and serious injuries from crashes. So we really feel that the legislation is so important. I'd like to hear about Emily's foundation and the purpose of it and what's happening with that. You know, we didn't know quite what to do. And and I guess not long after she was killed, like the high school, actually. Yeah. And people started, you know, giving us money. You know, you get a hundred dollars here. They just want to donate money. And well, what are we doing with this money? So we decided to start a foundation. Yes. So we're doing scholarships at our high school where she went to school. We actually went to school at the same high school. Yeah. And we've done, yeah, we've done class trips for the kids there. And we give out an athletic award because Emily was a volleyball player. We put uh, memorial benches they let us had made and put right in the entrance of the school that has her name on it. So we've been supporting other traffic organizations as well. Yeah, we're always looking for new ways to have her foundation make an impact on on someone's life. And we're hoping to have a distracted driver speaker come to uh, the high school this coming year. We're in talks with the with the high school about that now. So I, I did want to tell you just briefly, we have the dragonfly as the symbol for for Emily's foundation. Yes, please tell me the story of the dragonfly. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, she had a little dragonfly tattoo on her back, you know, close to her neck. And when she first got it and she, she showed me, what do you think I said to her was, well, that'll look great with a wedding dress. It's a terrible thing for me to say. And of course, you know, we then laughed and, and made up about it. And, you know, we didn't really fight over anything, but it was just a, Terrible thing to say. And, you know, one of those things as a mom that you just regret. And after she was killed, of course, I thought about that story again and again and again, because I just felt horrible about myself. And we decided to make the dragonfly the symbol. And we have dragonflies all over the place. So not only do we see them all over flying around, but so many people have given us gifts. And Richie said, if we get one more dragonfly around this house, the house is going to fly away. <laughs> it's all, it's all about the wings, I think. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. Crazy, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, it kind of re- reminds me and, uh, you know, several years ago, I heard an interview with uh, Jimmy Buffett on the radio and, uh, he was talking about his daughter that, and she had come to him and said, well, I, I want to get a tattoo. And so he wrote a song for her and the song was called uh, a permanent reminder of a temporary feeling. And on one level as I think, well, okay, that's kind of humorous and everything, you know, but as I think of Emily's tattoo of that dragonfly, 
you know, it's become a, a permanent reminder of her life and her spirit and has turned into such a gift. And hopefully not just for yourselves, but for all those people who have uh, gifted you with dragonflies, they had to be thinking of Emily just as they were thinking of you. And uh, so powerful, those, uh, those symbols that we carry with us. You know, to me, that's just very powerful. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, all of our listeners, you know, in some way, shape or form have access to a symbol, you know, that really compels them to live life as fully as, uh, you know, as each of us are able to live. Yeah. And then Richie's always looking for signs of Emily, you know, that open to it. Right. And the dragonfly is one of them. But we were just seeing baseball games and camping out west. And this happened to to Richie this day. So, yeah, I uh, we were going to a St. Louis game that night. But while we were in St. Louis, they had the Anheuser-Busch Brewery there. So we set up a tour to go. So in the morning, I said to Emily, and I don't usually say anything to her. I said, Em, just let me know you're around today. And that was it. I didn't think anything else of it. So we go on the tour. We meet a nice couple there. We talked, beginning of the tour. But as we got to the end of the tour, they gave me your, you know, celebratory beer because you went through the tour. And we sat down and these, this couple came and sat with us. And sure enough, her name was Emily. So she asked us, well, what was Emily's middle name? And they had the same middle name. And believe it or not, her last name began with F. So I was like, well, Emily sent me a person that I could actually hug instead of a dragonfly. Emily Claire herself. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And all, I had to do, all I had to do was ask. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Uh, it, yeah. it, is, it is amazing. It always reminds me of how small this world actually is, too. You know, as we encounter people along the way and, uh, you know, how they become part of our story as well. You know, certainly, you know, that's a a very powerful uh, highlight and message that uh, Emily sent to you. But as you think of of other highlights, what uh, might some of those be? I think how people are put in our path. Uh, By Emily. Yeah. So she does. She does constantly put people in our path. Just, you know, we started something in the Outer Banks because Emily put somebody in our path that had the abilities to make things happen. And, and, and she ended up, you know, reaching out to us. So we started a uh, Emily Frederick's Memorial Fund for safe streets for, for pedestrians and, and bikers in the Outer Banks. So her reaches to North Carolina as well. That's right. And that's where we have so many good memories of family vacations. So we were very open to starting this memorial fund down there with the Outer Banks Community Foundation, because that's where good memories are. When we go to Philadelphia, it's traumatic for us to go there. And that's where Emily was killed. So we're very excited about starting this new venture down there in the Outer Banks for the people who live there full time and, you know, the the vacationers that go down there that, you know, you want to be safe and how many kids are down there cycling. They're down there for the week and we want to make sure that they're all as safe as they can be. It reminds me, too, that we know the story of how Emily died. But to me, the overarching story is really how Emily lived, how her life continues to uh, make a difference for people 
not only in your family, but for people uh, who are an extension of your family as well. That's very true. And I, and I think when a tragedy like this happens, when someone who had their whole life ahead of them and had so much more to do and so much more to see and experience and their life was uh, cut short at such a young age, how do you still keep them in your life every day and in others' lives? And, you know, because she was killed really at the fault of someone else, how do you make any kind of, uh, there will never be any sense of it, but how do you put up some sort of way to keep, to keep your life moving forward without being completely dragged down? You know, the day after she was killed, I, I said to Richie and the boys, I said, we are not going to let her death break the four of us. We have to keep some sort of semblance together. And I do feel that we have, have done that. And you continue to do so. You know, some of our listeners may know that several years ago, we started a, an initiative called Live Forward as part of what we do with Keep Kids Alive, Drive 25. And what you and your family are doing are, are really such an incarnation of what Live Forward is all about, because Live Forward is all about supporting families and bringing good into the world in honor of their loved ones. And, uh, you know, Emily continues to uh, influence and do good through all the actions of your foundation, of your work with Families for Safe Streets, with the people that you encounter along the way who have no knowledge of Emily's foundation or Families for Safe Streets, but they become part of the story as well in, in living forward. And, you know, I'm grateful that you know, I would even have the privilege to be able to listen and to be able to share your story as you share it with our listeners. You know, what have you learned about yourself in the uh, the years since Emily died? Well, I, you know, we're sad, so sad all the time. You know, when you wake up in bed and you lay in bed and you you chit chat or you, you know, that's gone. We wake up in the morning and we get up out of bed because to have this downtime and your mind does not go in good places. So, you know, the busier we are, the better. But I think we're stronger than we ever thought that we could be. You know, we say it's exhausting to be with other people and try and put this good face on. And we're different people behind closed doors. And there is always this nagging sense of pointlessness, but we need to push that aside. And I always feel like, you know, what what's going to be the next tragedy? But even with all those thoughts, and we can't help those thoughts because Emily was killed and we don't have her anymore. We are still stronger than we ever thought we could be. Very many good memories uh, have kept us. So we were very close. We had, you know, Laura keeps scrapbooks of all the years growing up. And there's very many memories of uh, places we went. Disney, every year we went to Disney. So there's a lot of memories that we have that make us smile and not cry which is good. Well, I love just looking at the photo of, of Emily in her, you know, pastry chef outfit 
and uh, looking so happy. And I would have loved to tried some of her pastries, you know, but uh, I, I mean, to me, it's, it's just reflective of the joy and the being the person that, uh, that she was. That was a picture from her first day at the, at the new Cherie. restaurant in Philly. Yeah, La Cherie, it was called. Well, you know, it's beginning to look at wrapping up. Uh, are there any lessons that uh, you'd want to share, you know, with our listeners, uh, things that you'd, you'd just want them to pay attention to or adhere to? Yeah, I, I think, you know, be careful on the roadways. Obey the laws. They're there for a reason. Be patient. Like I said, traffic violence can affect anyone. And be an advocate for safe streets in your own neighborhood. If you see something that, you know, a problem corner or bring it to uh, your town's attention and perhaps some sort of traffic calming device can be installed, some sort of road diet can be put there. You know, you're the one that's using the roadways every day. You see the problem areas, bring it to the town's before attention does happen. right before someone gets killed because everybody deserves to get where they're going and get there alive and then return home to their families at the end of the day. Rich and I have learned so much about traffic violence and the Vision Zero Network is a really great place to visit. It's the visionzeronetwork.org. Great webinars, great information. And we have to remember that that needs to be the goal is zero traffic deaths. That's the message. That's what the whole nation needs to be focused on is zero traffic deaths, because who are you willing to lose? Thank you for bringing up again about Vision Zero and uh, you know sharing what it's about, because there are Vision Zero uh, initiatives that are taking place all across the country. I know here in Omaha, I've, I was the chair for the Vision Zero, the Mayor's Vision Zero Task Force that led to the hiring of our first Vision Zero coordinator for the city. And so we very much look forward to drawing together all of the entities that need to be involved in creating the environment within a city. You know, it certainly includes, uh, you know, law enforcement and public works, but it includes the school districts. It includes the neighborhood groups. It includes the emergency response teams from hospitals and fire departments. Uh, it includes businesses. It includes all of those people that make up a community to really make a wholehearted effort to create the kind of environment that re would reduce traffic deaths to absolute zero because it absolutely is the only acceptable number. Uh, Rich and uh, Laura, you know that you know beyond measure in terms of what uh, so many of us have experienced in life. Yeah, and that really needs to be the goal because we go out for the annual Ride of Silence out in Philly, and that's a national day of, of remembering those killed while cycling. And then we have the World Day of Remembrance that's every November, and we go out for that in Philly. And that's a national day of, of recognizing those that have been killed by traffic violence. And we don't want either of those days to happen anymore. We don't want to have to go out for another ride of silence or another World Day of Remembrance. We want those days to disappear from our calendar. So that takes all of us to be able to do that. 
When thinking about uh, the missions that you've been engaged in over these last five years, you know, how can our listeners become engaged in your mission? What is the uh, link for uh, Emily's website? So it's uh, emilyfrederiksfoundation.org. And then for Families for Safe Streets for Philly chapter, it's bicyclecoalition.org slash programs slash Families for Safe Streets. But again, Families for Safe Streets is, you know, a national organization. And in fact, I just reached out to, to somebody who filled out a form and is interested in getting involved. He had lost his dad. So there is a way for you to go on the Families for Safe Streets network there and find the chapter uh, that's closest to you in your area and someone will get back to you. Well, thank you. And for our listeners as well is uh, on our Keep Kids Alive website, which is keepkidsalivedrive25.org. Or if you want the shorter version, it's kkad25.org. We do have a sponsor partner page, and we'll make sure that Emily's foundation is on that page and that you can have the link for uh, Families for Safe Streets as well so that you can follow up that way. Are there any final thoughts that uh, you'd like to share that maybe are buzzing around in your heads? One more thing I did want to mention was about this uh, HB 140, which is the Parking Protected Bike Lane Bill that's in Pennsylvania. And it's named after Emily and for Susan Hicks, who was killed in Pittsburgh. She was a cyclist as well. And this bill would allow the vehicles parked to be the protection between the cyclists and the moving vehicles. And, oh, it's four or five years that this bill has just been languishing and stalled and now it's like being hijacked and there's amendments on it that make absolutely no sense and we keep pushing for this bill and we don't quite understand why it's not moving forward i think people who uh you know senators and representatives and and their districts and their constituents just because this bill will pass, it doesn't mean that tomorrow there's going to be a parking protected bike lane popping up on your street. It's allowing the engineers to have another tool in their toolbox. And I would hate to think how many cyclists have been killed from the time that this bill was introduced till today when it is still not passed. And it is very unfortunate. And that's another reason why we've started this uh, PA Safe Roads Pack. Because we really need to have the people in charge who are making these common sense safety changes to save lives. Well, and and it reminds me if we have any uh, legislators out there who actually draft legislation, you know, for me, it's a good reminder to keep things simple, keep things focused on the issue at hand. Uh, You know, one of the, uh, I guess, victories of sorts for uh, Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 over the years dates back to 2005 in uh, the Texas legislature, because in 2003, there was a young boy, uh, Kyle Foster, who was hit and killed crossing the street on Halloween night. He lived on a residential street, and the state of Texas has a 30-mile-an-hour mandate for residential streets, you know, regardless of how long they are, how wide they are, where they are. And, you know, it just didn't make sense in this case. And uh, the city, uh, Mesquite, uh, Texas, that Kyle was from, 
wanted to lower their limits, but in order to do so, they had to do a traffic engineering study on every single street that they would want to lower the limit on. And the residential streets in uh, Mesquite would have added up to a $14 million bill to do that. So it wasn't going to happen. And But a legislator came along and she said, I, I think that we can fix this. And so she wrote a simple two-paragraph bill that we now call Kyle's Law. And it just took out that traffic engineering study impediment to do something that was just commonsensical. They weren't going to change the limit downward on, you know, major arterials and feeder streets and, uh, you know, roadways like that, but on residential streets, which were very strictly defined as to where they are and how wide they are, it afforded communities the opportunity to lower their limits without having to do these extensive studies. So there are cities that chose to do that, you know, once they had the permission to do it and, and took out that financial impediment from the equation. And, uh, it is possible to do these things, but I think, you know, it's keeping that legislation very focused and narrow and uh, simple, you know, because what needs to be done often is obvious. But if we keep on, you know, making so many amendments and writers and whatever uh, attached to the original legislation, uh, you know, we lose the focus for what the mission was in the first place. So hopefully that can be more the norm going forward, but it takes effort to do that. And then this is HB 140. It is just a small wording change to the motor vehicle code out there to indicate how far away a car can be parked from the curb. So it's just a small wording in the motor vehicle code, and it's been a real struggle. We've heard so much about uh, practicing safe distancing over the last couple of years, and really that that's what this legislation is about is creating that space that you know can afford people uh, not only a, a safer journey, but preserving their life in the process for families and I imagine for those who were responsible for a death as well. That's our other issue. You know, the, the driver who killed Emily was charged with homicide by vehicle, involuntary manslaughter, and recklessly endangering another person. And it took the DA's office quite a while after she was killed to uh, bring forth those charges. There was the initial court case where the judge said, yes, we can move forward with those charges. And then the next hearing, uh, there was a a stumble and a fumble and the charges were dismissed. And uh, since then, they've been in appeal and trying to get them reinstated, the charges. So Wednesday... November will be five years that she was killed. The two remaining charges are being heard on Wednesday, and we have absolutely zero hope that those charges will move forward. So this man uh, is still driving a sanitation truck, and there were no other moving violations to our knowledge that he was given. So, you know, how do we hold people accountable for killing our loved ones when they were doing multiple things wrong? And how do we handle that? It is very difficult. So we just found that out, actually, that, uh, you know, Wednesday's court case will will not go well. How do you handle that? Well, it's out of our hands. I mean, really, we just... It's all a matter of forgiveness, too. It's just uh, very difficult. 
Yeah. So I talked to my my older son uh, yesterday to tell him, and I said to him, you know, we can't let this information drag us down to the point where we can't get back up again, because no matter what happens with the driver, it's not like we get Emily back. She's not coming back. I used to say that in the beginning. Well, if if the house is straightened or if I do this or if I do that, you know, your mind plays tricks on you. Well, if I get all this in order, can I have her back now? This is the same thing. Even if he's charged and he, she's not coming back. So how do we have that in our minds? Did he get away with killing our daughter? Yes, he did. How many are in our same situation of all of our people that we know with families for safe streets and beyond? You know, I often say, if you want to kill someone, use your vehicle because there are no consequences. So it is very difficult, but we have to, you know, like you say, live forward. Okay. Well, you know, I thank you once again, and I thank all our listeners for tuning in and uh, being a part of the Keep Kids Alive podcast. Uh, grateful to, uh, to Laura and Rich for joining us today and honoring uh, the memory, the life, the love, the compassion uh, that Emily shared and continues to share with everyone who's been touched by her life. And even though I, I didn't get a chance to meet Emily while she was living and breathing, I certainly have been touched by her life. And so, uh, you know, I'm grateful for that. Again, for listeners, uh, if you'd like to learn more about Keep Kids Alive Drive 25 and our organization, we're at keepkidsalivedrive25.org. And also uh, there's a link. There's actually several links on our website to uh, all the episodes of the Keep Kids Alive podcast. And so you're welcome to put that on your, your list to listen in and hopefully to, uh, to learn and uh, put into practice the, the lessons that there are to learn from all those who have joined us uh, along the way. So again, thank you very much, Lauren Rich, for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. Please visit kkad25.org to find out how you can support Keep Kids Alive Drive 25. And get involved by following on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, it's about kids. It's about safety. It's about caring. It's about time.